informal chat anymore. <laughs> no such thing as informal chat on this podcast now. It's all formal chat. Right. Are we, are we it's all discourse. Begin the discourse. Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast which gives new life to old books. Today, you find us in downtown San Francisco on a foggy evening in 1929. In an alley off Bush Street, a single shot rings out. There's a crash as something or someone smashes through the fence that runs alongside the alley and tumbles to the bottom of the slope. A car pulls away, its headlights angling across the street. Then silence returns. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the pub <laughs> the publisher of Unbound, where people crowdfund the books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, the author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And today on Backlisted, we are joined by a new guest. Mark Billingham making his backlisted debut. Welcome, Mark. Hi, Mark. Hello, thank you for having me. Mark Billingham is one of the UK's most acclaimed and popular crime writers. His series of novels featuring D.I. Tom Thorne has twice won him the Crime Novel of the Year Award. Every single one of his 23 novels has been a Sunday Times top 10 bestseller. And his debut novel, Sleepyhead, was chosen by the Sunday Times as one of the 100 books that had shaped the decade. In 2021, he received the award for Outstanding Contribution to Crime Fiction at the Harrogate Crime Writing Festival. And his latest novel is The Last Dance, the first in a new series featuring Detective Sergeant Declan Miller, uh, published by Sphere. A Sky television series based on the Thorne novels starred David Morrissey as Tom Thorne, and a series based on In the Dark and Time of Death was broadcast on the BBC in 2017. Mark lives in London with his wife and two children when he's not living out rock star fantasies as a member of the fun-loving crime writers, about whom we shall talk in a moment. He is hard at work writing his next novel. Mark, I saw um, you and your fellow fun-loving crime writers uh, back in January giving an unplugged performance and yeah. chatting <laughs> in an informal setting. Yes. Is it quite difficult to make your diaries fit with one another if you need to get because you were pretty good and you know you were saying on stage well we don't get together to rehearse very often getting together is hard because not only have we all got you know busy diaries but we all live in different cities you know we've we've got people coming from scotland and northern ireland and the south of england and the north of england and so trying to get us in the same place you know at the same time is is tricky uh, and sometimes when... we'll, we'll rehearse at sound checks you know quite yeah often yeah we have to do that yeah so I think when Val McDermott was with us, she she was saying that she really enjoys it because it seems like a it's like a bonus. It's not it's not what she got into crime writing for, and yet and yet here it is. is oh, it's exactly you... what I got into crime writing for. Um, <laughs> I knew this day would come. No, no, I feel exactly the same as Val. I mean, as two as the two oldest members of the band, we you know the pair of us both look at each other sometimes and go, "How did this happen?" You know, <laughs> what started out as just a bit of fun, you know, that we could do, at, you know, late night at some festivals is, has become a bit full on in a good way. <laughs> it is a fixed lineup, or is it like a style council style arrangement with you and Val? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. It, it is a fixed lineup now. No, it is like definitely fall, now. Yeah. <laughs> because of, I mean, because of the difficulty of getting us all together, early on we did the odd gig where, you know, one of us wasn't there. Um, notably when we were playing in uh, in Iceland and Val called us when we were at the airport 
to say, I'm not going to make it. I'm feeling terrible. So right. we went and we played the show in Iceland and we figured out, you know, we rejigged no, the set. And no, show sing, right? no, no show McDermott. No show McDermott. And and to be honest, we just decided we'd never do it again. We'd never do that again. And so we've always right. had that thing of it's all six right. of us or it's none of us. And how, Mark, how do you fit your writing commitments in around your touring schedule? You write prolifically, right? And it seems to me, judging from what you were saying and your fellow panellists were saying, that it's important readers want a series. They often want a series. So when you commit to a new book, you're probably committing to three or four new books if you get it away and it's working. Yeah. Do you, how do you balance out this whole thing of promoting the work with creating the work? Well, I, I suppose I, I, I just have a fairly good inbuilt sense of, uh, of a calendar in that I know that that is writing time and that is showing off time. Because I can't mix the two things. I absolutely can't, can't mix the two things. I cannot write in a hotel or on a train. But that said, and I'm sure other writers have said this to you, you you're writing the book in your head all the time. It never goes anywhere. So yeah, that thing is yeah. in your head pretty much for the whole year you're writing the book and you're working mm. stuff out and trying to solve problems. But I can put that to the back of my head and go, this is time to get up on stage and gob off about the previous book or play <laughs> right. with the band or whatever it might be. And if I'm honest, that's the bit I enjoy the most. You know, I mean, I know is that it? a lot of writers... Yeah, God, I mean, I know a gobbing lot of Gobbing off, I love it. <laughs> the gobbing off. I know, I know a lot of writers would rather stick needles in their eyes, you know, than stand up on yeah, stage it's true. and talk about stuff. And, and that's the way it used to be. But over the past 20, 25 years, I suppose, increasingly writers have been under pressure to get out there and sell themselves as much as they... You know, the publishers are trying to sell their books. And that's the bit I love. You know, I'm just a big show-off and I come from a sort of performance background. So that's the bit I'm like, that's the perk. The job is sitting in this chair and, and writing the book. And the perk is somebody saying, do you want to come and come to this festival and talk about it? When was your first novel published? 2001. Okay, so you've been, you've been doing this for over 20 years. Yeah. Crime seems to me to be one of the success stories of the last 20 years. I mean, we were talking earlier that in 1990, when I was at Waterstones, we ran a British crime festival. And I remember the novelty of the party, you know, these crime writers all getting together saying, oh, this is, this is great, we should, you know. <laughs> it didn't happen as much then. And now it feels to me like it's, you know, publishers know what they're doing with crime lists. There's obviously, the, the, as you say, there's the, the structure of festivals, there's Harrogate, there's the, the daggers, which always were a slightly strange, you know, they weren't kind of centre stage literary awards that the, the Crime Writer Association daggers, and now they're kind of big. It's a really big, glitzy occasion. I was there last year; it was fantastic. And I guess also, you know, you look at television. Maybe television was has always been full of crime and procedurals, but there seems to be a lot more of it now than than, than there's ever yes, been. Yes, and and I think you are more likely these days to get an invitation to yeah. Hay or Cheltenham or Oxford or oh, yeah, one of the more prestigious literary festivals yeah. than you would have been 25 years ago. Yeah, it's not, you know? there's not that divide, the, the you know, literary mm, not generic so divide. Much, not so much. I mean, you still come across it some, you still come across it at some <laughs> places where you, you know, you walk into the, mind you, you know, there was a time when if you walked into the green room at, at Hay and you were a writer, you were in the minority. 
because the place was full of politicians <laughs> and TV chefs. And, you know, it, you'd be looking around going, so isn't true. this a book festival? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. no, I mean, crime, obviously crime has just grown enormously in the 20 odd years I've been doing it. But also, of course, we've had the, just the growth of social media, which means, you know, when you've got an event, it's very easy to say, I'm here tomorrow. I'm going to be there next week. Come out and see me at this event or whatever. Mm, All that yeah. stuff. But it's still hit and miss. It's still very hit and miss. But a strange thing I've noticed, if you, if you turn up and there's an audience of 200 people and you have a storming event, you'll probably sell less books than you would yes. if you turned up to 40 people. Because the queue's commensurately longer. Yeah. People have got places to go. It's one of the things that the Hay Festival is very good at. They, they have that very good bookshop and people have, seem to be prepared to queue for hours. It's bizarre. Yeah. But hey, I mean, bizarre, but good. Yes. <laughs> you do such wild and unpredictable things. Don't be silly. You're taking the fall. You've been playing with me. Just pretending you care to trap me like this. You didn't care at all. You don't love me. I won't play the sap for you. Oh, you know it's not like that. You can't say that. You'll never play square with me for half an hour at a stretch since I've known you. You know darn deep in your heart that in spite of anything I've done, I love you. I don't care who loves who. I won't play the sap for you. I won't walk at Thursby's night in the how many other footsteps. You killed Miles and you're going over for it. Guess what we're going to talk about. We're going to... The book we're here to discuss today is, in fact, a crime novel. The Maltese Falcon by... And listen closely to Sheil Hammett, first serialized in Black Mask magazine in 1929 and then in book form by Alfred A. Knopf the following year. It's widely considered to be the novel that inaugurated the hard-boiled genre of detective fiction. It introduces the tough, abrasive, but relentlessly just private detective Sam Spade, who sent Dorothy Parker mooning about in a daze of love such as I had not known for any character in literature since I encountered Sir Lancelot. Um, <laughs> the labyrinthine plot Steady. turns around the eponymous falcon of the title, a statuette so valuable that three people are killed in the search to retrieve it. But the plot, tight as a tripwire though it may be, is not what has made this book a classic. It's the snap of Hammett's dialogue, the dread-laden atmosphere in which all the characters plot and double-cross each other at will, and the haze of cigarette smoke and hard liquor that surround them that lingers in the memory. Hammett, San Francisco, filled with sharp-tongued dames, wise-cracking gumshoes, cops on the take and thugs on the lamb, spawned a whole genre of noir novels and movies, including John Huston's classic adaptation starring Humphrey Bogart and Mary Astor in 1941. In 1995, the Mystery Writers of America voted The Maltese Falcon the third greatest crime novel of all time. In the next hour, we'll attempt to establish why. To keep you listening, the exciting promise of a quiz later on, ah! which will establish <laughs> yes. the surprising links between Dashiell Hammett and Elvis Costello. <laughs> so we will, uh, we, will come, we will come on to that before we finish. But first, we'll start where we always start on Backlisted. Mark. Where or when or why did you first encounter the Maltese Falcon or the work of Dashiell Hammett? Well, I'd seen the movie, the Bogart movie, and I started going out and buying hard-boiled crime fiction. Picador did a great, they did three volumes of Chandler, and they did what they called the four great novels of Dashiell Hammett, <laughs> in addition, which I still have. Well, I read all of them, and they're all terrific. And I went out and then got his Continental Ops stories. But The Maltese Falcon is the book I've just been, you know, 
passionate about ever since. You know, I've read it. I've probably read it a dozen times. If I'm ever, if I'm ever asked to pick a book for any, you know, <laughs> for any book for any occasion, it will be the Maltese Falcon because, as, as John was hinting at there at the beginning, everybody accepts that it's an important novel. You know, in terms of its place in the genre and the fact that it kickstarted the hardball movement. But my argument, and you know, the hill I will die on, is that it's also a great novel, not just an important one. I have to say that I had never read The Maltese Falcon, though, like you were saying, I'd seen the Houston film. I'd never read the novel before we were preparing for this episode. Mitch, you had you read it before? I certainly had. You'd read it before? Okay. Yeah, yeah. But I, well, the first thing to say is I, I could not believe this novel is nearly 100 years old. Yeah, right. Yeah. Amazing, isn't it? As, as simple and straightforward as that. So culturally omnipotent <laughs> is the voice minted by uh, Hammett in that one novel uh, nearly 100 years ago. It seems impossible that you're reading something that hadn't been written before, and yet you're constantly being reminded that before this guy no one wrote like that yeah it's it, extraordinary yeah it, it it is it is extraordinary and it, it was didn't Chandler say something because it was so influential anybody who answers yeah in a book was instantly accused of ripping <laughs> off Hammett. I mean we'll, we'll come on to the we'll come on to the dialogue later I read it at Andy when I came down from university I'd had enough of very large novels uh, written by people in you know periwigs, and I just uh, I just started to read those Picador collections, and I worked my way through Hammett the, the Hammett collection, the Chandler collection, the James M Kane collection, went on to to Jim Thompson and a, a lot more in that sort of black mask kind of Ross McDonald. Ross McDonald, some brilliant writers. And, and for, and for of... listeners, listeners won't appreciate this, but here is that very volume. Still has my name in the front, as I used brilliant, to do back it? in those days. <laughs> <laughs> as you said, Mark, the four great novels, and but not the, you know, whichever one they left out. Well, the one they left out, of course, is the one he's, he's in many ways best known for, which is The Thin, Thin Man. Man. Thin Man, okay. Which was made into loads of movies and stuff. Which, yeah. which made him a lot of money, which he, yeah. we'll talk about what he did with that money. But yeah. the, 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 the key, I think, for me rereading it is I, I have to say, I, I remember enjoying it hugely at the time. I think maybe when you're younger, you're a bit more impressed by Chandler because you think Chand Chandler's got the flouncy, you know, she was as cute as lace pants, you know, a black hole opened at my feet and I fell in. But this is... A, Really great novel. I was blown away by rereading it, and I've I, I've been. It's put me in a great mood all week. It's an. It's right up there. I would say with. I think with Gatsby, with Etranger by Camus. I think it's a great modern existential classic. Yeah, I mean, I know that you know. Obviously, there are always comparisons made with Chandler, and Chandler is often thought of as being actually the better prose stylist. I would yeah. argue with that, and, I, and I'm sure we'll come me, on to talking about the prose. Um, but I think in many ways, actually, Hammett has, has worn better. And certainly in the case of this novel, I think one of the reasons that Hammett has worn better is that it's the only novel to feature Sam Spade. And I think, you know, he, <laughs> right. again, whether that's an argument that people can have, you know, without ever knowing the, the answer to it, because maybe he would have written more about Spade if he hadn't been so... But, you know, troubled with you ill health just, and stuff. Can I just dig into that a bit? Is that because you think if he had written Sam Spade repeatedly, perhaps like Marlowe a kind, and Chandler, a kind of self-conscious yes. by rote element? I, I 100% agree. I mean, I, it's very tempting to, to believe that, that Hammett already 
understood the sort of law of diminishing returns uh, that a series mm. that a series you know he, he'd written the thirty seven continental ops stories, a couple of yeah. novels. Yeah, he, he cut his teeth writing for Pounder Word detective stories, Black Mask. I mean, it, it yeah. was he kind of learned his craft um, not. You might sitting kind of th- thinking of great thoughts in his bedroom. Although he had all those great thoughts, I think he did. He was quite ambitious. He wanted to. Mm. There's a great story. Someone would say his, his, he was the brightest of his siblings, um, troubled family, who's reading Kant, Immanuel Kant, at the age of 13. <laughs> so wow. he kind of had a kind of. And an, an, maybe you come on to this. I know we got stories about Gertrude Stein and things later, but but he he learned his craft writing popular stories for, for the popular detective magazines of the day. Mark, let's say Hammett did not intend to found a genre. <laughs> we'll come on to why, maybe why not. But what are the hallmarks of the hard-boiled genre? What, should, what are we looking for when we read a hard-boiled crime novel? Well, in terms of prose, you're looking for what I call muscular prose. You're looking for sort of clipped short, snappy, hard-boiled sentences. There are the tropes. There, there's the femme fatale. There's the hard-boiled yeah. gumshoe. Yeah. There's, there, there's the kind of characters John's already described, you know, the, the, the villains on the run, the gangsters, the whatever. All the, And, I, I, you know, I'm not saying he was the first person ever to write about characters like that. I don't no. know. I don't know much about what became before no, no, no. Hammett. What he never did, quite crucially, was take us inside Sam Spade's head. And that's, that's yeah. one of the things yes. that makes okay. this novel so unique, I think. It, when the, um, the Maltese Falcon was published and was a surprising success, I think, every, including Hammett, everyone was surprised at its commercial success. Um, he was compared stylistically to Hemingway he quite was. a lot. And that similar, very sparse prose, one of the things that it, it's perceived that, that both Hemingway and Hammett were responding to was a kind of post-First World War um, nobility of conflict language which had led indirectly to the death of so many millions of people that it was basically the curlicues of style were were perceived after the First World War as bullshit and what you needed to do yeah. was get down to the heart of the matter. Glory, and courage, honour, Hemingway, kind of yeah. yeah. Hammett and Hemingway are much closer in spirit or were perceived as much closer in the spirit in spirit at the time than they would be now but in fact they're both coming from that kind of there's that quote isn't there that um Hammett was the better writer because whereas Hemingway's tough language yet weakness softness Hammett's yeah. yeah softness Hammett's language hid Toughness. Toughness, yeah. Well, the There's other, the other name I'm going to throw into bluff. the mix here in terms of, of possible influences, and it's just one I'd, I'd love to think was possible, is Noel Coward. Brilliant. Because, <laughs> because although what was very, happening in... Very, what was happening, very hilly San Francisco. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, what was happening in literary, in literary terms uh, on this side of the Atlantic, you know, when, when the Maltese Falcon was published, of course, was, you know, the early flowerings of what became known as golden age fiction here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the classic mm-hmm. between the wars, Agatha Christie, yeah, yeah. Marjorie Allingham, blah, blah, blah. But what was happening on the stage, the, the same year Maltese Falcon came out was the first production of Private Lives. And it's so tempting to think that, I'm not saying Hammett popped over here and went to see it, uh, but maybe <laughs> but maybe he'd read Coward because there is something in those, those exchanges 
that those sort of yeah, tennis witty. match exchanges yeah. between Spade and Gutman uh, and 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 Casper Gutman that really you know they are that kind of fat free fizzing kind of crackling dialogue that you associate with somebody like Noel Coward you know albeit yeah, yeah, you know yeah. very different very different subject but I That's mean brilliant you know who knows Mark do you want to read us a bit yeah and I I'm, wonder I'm, whether you could set the scene. Well, it's a very easy scene to set because it's the opening of the book. And I deliberately didn't want to choose anything that that has dialogue in because then you become very self-conscious about the voice you're using and you end up doing a terrible yeah. impression of Humphrey Bogart. And, uh, you know. So this is just the opening of the first chapter, which is called Spade and Archer. Samuel Spade's jaw was long and bony, his chin a jutting V under the more flexible V of his mouth. His nostrils curved back to make another smaller V. His yellow-grey eyes were horizontal. The V motif was picked up again by thickish brows rising outward from twin creases above a hooked nose, and his pale brown hair grew down from high flat temples in a point on his forehead. He looked rather pleasantly like a blonde Satan. He said to Effie Perrine, Yes, sweetheart? <laughs> so blonde great. Satan. And then what happens is what I love is it's the first... It's the first time a, a a kind of a beautiful, mysterious woman right. comes in with a roll of cash yeah. and tell and has got a mystery that she needs solving. And, and that like, is the trope. It, you know, that's the trope it, of hard boiled detective moment, fiction, right? And it, I, I remember reading it thinking, oh my God, he did this before anybody else. Yeah. This before this. And you think of all the countless books that have started with that. Yeah. Um, and there's a great I mean, the one of the many, I think, brilliant things in the book are the are the different the different ways he relates to the women in the book with his assistant, Effie, which is, it kind of bookends the whole book. He has a very physical relationship with, mm -hmm. with her that probably, probably wouldn't be allowed today. Well, strict, she's strict HR terms. Yeah. Effie, Effie, I think is the only, and this is one of the things I love about the book. Effie is probably the only decent person, person in the, in the entire book. book. Yes. Okay. And, yeah. and that's for a very good reason. That's for a little trick that Hammett plays. In that the first time the femme fatale, we meet the femme fatale, who starts off being Miss Wonderly and eventually becomes Bridget, uh, <laughs> Spade asks Effie what she thinks of her. And Effie says, I'm with her. I'm with like, her, you know, yeah. I, And that's the dummy that the reader buys. Yeah. Because that's, yeah. you think, well, if Effie thinks she's great, then okay. we'll, we'll go with that. But yeah, what, okay. it's one of the things I love about the book because there's so much these days, you see it in television, you see it in books all the time, where, where publishers say, who are we rooting for? Who's the, who's the, who's who's the, the relatable person? character? Yeah, yeah, who's yeah. A, none of them. They're all horrible, <laughs> including Spade, probably, which is you know the mystery of the novel. Well, I was going to ask you, is Spade... Is he a good guy? See, that is for, good that guy, for right? me is, is what makes this the archetypal mystery novel because... Uh, crime fiction in America is called mystery fiction. And most of the time, that's a terrible description because most of the time, the books that are called mystery novels are not mysteries at all. Not really. You know, if the only thing that's going on is who your killer is, the whodunit, then it's probably a terrible book. So, but this is, this is genuinely a mystery novel. And, and the mystery at the heart of it is not, it's nothing to do with the bloody falcon. You know, the falcon the, is the biggest, the biggest MacGuffin Mac in the history. Exactly. It is, it is, the biggest it's MacGuffin, the MacGuffin ever. of MacGuffins. Right. It absolutely. <laughs> I suppose the mystery at the heart of it is, is, what is Spade's game? And the reader is encouraged, and, and this is where the book is very different to, to the film. The reader is encouraged, actually, to think that Spade is morally corrupt, completely morally corrupt. I mean, yes, he finds yeah. out his partner's yes. been shot. The first thing he does is light a fag. 
The second thing he does is, is wipe his partner's name off the door. Yeah. Oh, oh, and by the way, he's sleeping with his partner's wife. Yeah. So you kind treats of think... Treats her really badly. Treats her really badly. Yeah. He's, he's a fairly terrible person. But so is he doing it, as he later claims, simply because his partner's been killed and he's a man supposed to do something about that? If the Falcon had turned out to be something other than it does turn out to be, you know, would he have waltzed off with it? You, you never really get to find out. And that's what I love about it. I suppose also what would be lost to some extent to a reader, to us as readers nearly a century later, because precisely because of the innovations made by Hammett, is that idea of the anti-hero is sort of minted here, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you would have, it would have been, the thing you're talking about, Mark, would have been much more shocking to a contemporary reader yeah. that their supposed hero is at best amoral and possibly immoral. <laughs> or at least he's immoral to a reader in the late 1920s or early 1930s. I think you're absolutely right, Andy. I think it's kind of, it was kind of revolutionary. And even, even yeah. 10 years later, more than 10 years later, when John Houston is making the film, he can't do that. Yeah. You know, he has to, you, you, you have to be rooting for Humphrey Bogart right from the word go, even though Humphrey Bogart is no, nowhere near the Sam Spade of the books. What, one of the things I've always <laughs> loved is the fact that uh, when Houston made the film, Houston didn't want Bogart. Houston wanted George Raft. And George Raft, of course, who had, who had played wow. lots of killers and extremely yeah. amoral characters, he's yeah, much closer yeah. to the spade in the books than, than Bogart. The blonde Satan. I mean, it's, yeah. it's there, right? It's a yeah. kind of Nietzschean kind of quality. And we like to, on this podcast, we like to uh, appraise the blurbs that publishers apply to the books we're talking about. And I've got a treat for you here. I'm going to read you two parts of the jacket flap from the original first edition of the Maltese Falcon. Go for it. And you tell me, guys, whether you think this is uh, doing a good selling job. <laughs> right. Mark, do you write your own blurbs or do people write them for you or do you collaborate or... I collaborate. I mean, it's always struck me as very strange that a writer would want to spend a year writing a book and then not have some say about what it says on the back of it. Um, <laughs> You'd be surprised, Mark. I know. But, but he, or even what the picture on the front of it is. Yes, no, I absolutely yeah. do collaborate. My editor will do a first draft of a blurb and then we'll bat it backwards and forwards. Punch it up a bit, we're both yeah. Happy, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put my reputation on the line and say I don't think DeShiel Hammett had anything to do with this blurb. <laughs> but anyway, well, let's see, shall I, we? I know who his editor was. Who's his editor? His editor was Blanche Knopf. It was so... Alfred's wife. I reckon Blanche may have been involved yeah. here. Let's see what we think. A knockabout romantic comedy that the whole family yeah. will enjoy. <laughs> the man who understands women. Yeah. <laughs> Maltese Falcon by Dashiel Hammett. Sam Spade is a knockout detective, and yet, personally, he cares not a hoot for the law. So little, so that constantly he is just on the verge of being pulled by the Frisco cops. When Spade goes out after anything, neither lead slugs, women, nor the old Nick himself can stop him from landing it. Here he sets himself to outwit three contending factions who all want the same thing which he also wants, and it is only natural, therefore, that many murders strew his winding wake, that several <laughs> persons suddenly fall doped, and a great liner burns mysteriously to the water's edge. <laughs> That's, That's it. terrible, isn't uh, it? It's is, really wow. terrible, Ow. isn't it? Wow. Ow. <laughs> <laughs> now, normally when we do this feature, Mark, we, we end up saying, oh, that was surprisingly good. Yeah. That, not in that case. Do you want a bit more? Yeah, go on. I can't imagine where it's going to go. We turn our attention now to the back flap. 
Because that's the they've done the hard sell on yeah. the, on that flap, right? Here's the back flap. Dashiell Hammett. Dashiell Hammett writes a superior mystery novel because for many years he was a Pinkerton detective. Yeah, he was. He is probably the only quote unquote bull who has ever turned his experience into the writing of crime stories. To Hammett, plot is not the main thing in the story. It is the behaviour of the detective attacking a problem which intrigues him. The op, as Hammett sees him, is, quote, a little man going forward day after day through mud and blood and death and deceit, as callous and brutal and cynical as is necessary, towards a dim goal with nothing to push or pull him towards it except that he's been hired to reach it. Okay. That's you sad. see, she hands it over to DeShiel, if indeed it was Blanche Knott, but everything feels okay, doesn't That's it? a bit better, yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, the, I mean the, the, his experience, the Pinkerton detective thing is really interesting because, I mean, it's an amazing cast of characters who we haven't really mentioned yet, but the cast of yeah. characters, yeah. supporting characters, is just we should do peerless. That. It's peerless. And they were all based on characters he'd come across as a detective. So Bridget O'Shaughnessy was a former client, Wilma, the, the, the midget, was, was a gunman uh, in the book who was based on a, on a villain called the Midget Bandit, uh, who he dealt with. <laughs> Cairo was a, Joel Cairo was a forger. And the interesting one, Caspar Gutman, there are two theories about this, the fat man. One, that he was a German agent that, mm. that, that Hammett had come across. Mm. The other one, that he was based on Fatty Arbuckle, because Hammett worked on the Fatty Arbuckle rape case. The very famous oh my Fatty God, Arbuckle really? case. Amazing. So some people think he's supposed to be Fatty Arbuckle or based on Fatty Arbuckle. I just want to, uh, as a prompt for people who haven't read the book but have seen the film, which might be a, quite a few people, um, Sam Spade played by Humphrey Bogart, as discussed, and Bridget O'Shaughnessy played by Mary Astor. But Joel Cairo is unforgettably played by Peter Laurie. Yeah. Casper Gutman is unforgettably played by Sydney, Sydney Greenstreet. Green and Wilma Cook by Elisha Cook Jr. I mean, it's yeah, a pretty... It's, a it's amazing. An amazing cast. Isn't it? Yeah. One of the great film noirs, obviously. Do you know what John Huston's cameo is in his own film? I do not. No. He plays the sea captain who staggers up <laughs> the threshold and dies. Captain Jacoby. Captain yeah. Jacoby, brilliant. Which is the only, <laughs> uh, bear in mind, you know, it's the only death that's actually on the page, as it were. It's the only, it's the only death we witnessed. Yes, in that's the right. Yes, that's, that's true. Right. Of three. Nikki, could we hear a little clip from the Maltese Falcon by John Houston, please? Mr. Spade, I, I have a terrible, terrible confession to make. That story I told you yesterday was just a story. Oh, that. Well, we, we didn't exactly believe your story, Miss... Uh, what is your name? Wonderly or LeBlanc? It's really O'Shaughnessy, Bridget O'Shaughnessy. We didn't exactly believe your story, Miss O'Shaughnessy. We believed you $200. You mean that... I mean, you paid us more than if you'd been telling us the truth and enough more to make it all right. Tell me, Mr. Spade. Am I to blame for last night? Oh, you warned us that Thursby was dangerous. Of course, you lied to us about your sister and all that, but that didn't count. We didn't believe you. No, I, I wouldn't say that you were at fault. Thank you. George was so alive yesterday. So solid and hearty. Stop and... it. You know what he was doing? Those are the chances we take. Was he married? Yeah, with 10,000 insurance, no children, and a wife that didn't like him. <laughs> it's quite clear from that clip that he didn't give a hoot. The guy who doesn't give a hoot. Yeah. Seems like that might be an appropriate moment for us to break in the chat just for a message from our sponsors. 
eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. The film is different, right, Mark? But it doesn't do any damage to the book, does it? No, no, I don't think it does. I mean, especially with that cast that we've already mentioned. I mean, with, with the possible exception of Bogart, actually, it's perfectly cast. I mean, it <laughs> do you is... think, though? Do you think, though? Seriously, though? You no, think I... Bogart is not warming it up a bit for the screen? He is, and and some of some of the some of the decisions were were Houston's in that, and it, and it's been filmed certainly on more than one. There were two films before uh, mm. Houston's film, but all the film adaptations did the same thing, which the book doesn't. They all chose to show the moment when Spade realizes, and obviously we're going to be this is massive spoiler alert here, um, when Spade realizes who killed his partner. Let's say, yeah, um, which is never shown in the book. Again, that is a no. moment that the re- is left to the reader to try and figure out. And and Bogart, the problem I suppose is that Bogart also played Marlowe. That's sort that's sort of one of the issues. He's he's yeah. known to play yeah, yeah. the two iconic, uh, you know, noir uh, hard boiled detectives. And there's not a lot to choose in, in between the two in their in their film incarnations. <laughs> you know, they're they're kind of interchangeable. Yeah. No, I'm not saying it, it, uh, that film did anything to spoil the book, really. But the but the book is a much different experience. If all you know is the film, when you read the book, you'll be quite surprised. I think. Okay, so so I want to ask you both then the 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 book's justified reputation as the birthplace of the hard boiled crime fiction. Has that imprisoned the Maltese Falcon critically in a way that we, you know, when I was talking about the comparison with Hemingway, which people were very happy to make at the time, they would not make now because of the divide between genre mm. and quote unquote literature. Do you think the Maltese Falcon has been slightly imprisoned by genre so that people can't see its literary attributes? To a degree, that's certainly true. Uh, as I said way back at the beginning, I've always tried to maintain it's a great novel and not just an important one. Uh, but I think, I think what you're saying is true of almost any beautifully written genre novel. Mm. If, you, if you started talking to people about serial killer thrillers, let's say, you'd have to make an extremely good argument for the fact that Silence of the Lambs by Thomas Harris or Red Dragon by Thomas Harris is a wonderful, wonderful novel. You know, that then spawned a whole host of inferior imitators, there's no question about that, but is still a great piece of literature. And I will, you know, fight anybody who, who says any different. Um, and the, the, the same is certainly true of, so, I mean, writers of a certain age, I mean, and, and it's happened to Chandler. Chandler has certainly been, you know, Chandler is now certainly seen as being in the literary firmament in the same way that Patricia Highsmith is, uh, and, and probably James M. Cain or Cornell Woolrich or, or some of those people who, who were writing. Mm. Um, but it, it, it's almost like you've got to be dead nearly 100 years before a genre writer can get the, the props they deserve mm. from the literary community. Mm. John, do you think there's something... My, my pet theory on this is that the very thing that Hammett withholds, psychological insight, is the, the bedrock of so much 20th century literary writing. Okay. <laughs> so, 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 it's, um, so it's a mission 
seems like not a deliberate choice, but a, a, a failure in some ways, if read in a particular way. Though, though it seemed to me reading it afresh, that wasn't the case at all. So, uh, well, I've got two things to say about that. One is going back to the list of the greatest crime novels of all time, or the greatest list on the, 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 the mystery writers of America in 1995 put together. Really interesting. Their first was Sherlock Holmes by uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, the complete Sherlock Holmes. Second was Edgar Allan Poe, Tales of Mystery and Imagination. And then third was was the Maltese Falcon. So okay. they're, they're already quite, they're quite literary things to have at the top of the list, I think. You could argue that Holmes is, but Poe is definitely seen to be a, a kind of uh, a literary writer, and I think I think you're I think you're right, Andy. But what's in it? The Maltese Falcon happens at a, a really interesting juncture, I think, in, in what's ha- going on in 20th century literature. The French don't have such a problem with this. They don't have a problem with seeing great art as 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 as, as genre. But he writes Hammett writes uh, to uh, to his editor Blanche Knopf and says, I want to write a stream of consciousness novel. He was a huge admirer of Gertrude Stein and apparently also Henry James. And then suddenly got a contract to do some stuff for Hollywood, to do some writing for Hollywood. So he says, I've had a bit of a change in plan with my (laughs) my stream of consciousness novel. He said, and he said, I want it to be, I'm only going to write in objective and filmable form. So it was what the the, 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 the the critic I was reading said, it's perhaps that the Maltese Falcon is the first book that was ever conceived as a film before it was written, that he already had this idea that it was about scenes and exteriors. I think you're right to say that the, the lack of psychology in it has has maybe sometimes made it more difficult. You've got to also see that it's surrounded by a lot of stuff that isn't anywhere near as good as the Maltese Falcon. But I would say, I mean, I genuinely think that it is, it does bear comparison as a work of 20th century American art. One of the things that doesn't happen in the book, in the film, is when Spade goes back to the office at the end, he's quite depressed to realise that in the end he's trapped, you know, Mary, Mary Astor, uh, Bridget O'Shaughnessy may be going to jail, but he's trapped in his life as a detective. And I think some knowledge of what happens next in Hammett's life only makes you see what an, an extraordinary one-off achievement, achievement the Maltese well, Falcon is. Bridget O'Shaughnessy, of course, won't just be going to jail. She'll be going to her death. And, yes. and, Spade, and Spade has sent her to her death. Yeah. Uh, you know, she pleads. Yeah. She, she begs and pleads for, for him to let her go. And then he reels off a list of seven he reels off a list yes. of seven reasons yeah. uh, in this big long speech why he can't possibly do that, and sends her off to to be ex- almost certainly to be executed. What I think that's fascinating. What you've just said about it possibly being a sort of novel, almost like a novelized screenplay, yeah. uh, because of course the difference between a book and a film is that you're never inside. You cannot get inside a character's head in a movie unless you have a cheesy kind of voiceover. Um, <laughs> but I, I would argue that everything. Hammett did in terms of what he left out psychologically that you know not mm-hmm. that lack of psychological insight was completely deliberate yeah I he, agree he's agree. talked about this mm-hmm. later he talked about this later on and it was a technique which he called meiosis which was something he learned in his advertising days that's basically less is more that if you hold back and and you understate stuff 
you actually increase the impression. You actually make a greater impression by understating stuff. Less is more, basically. And I think it was completely deliberate. When it comes down to it, Hammett creates what is perceived as, very important um, phrase, what is perceived as a non-literary genre by bringing to it all his reading and ideas and the discipline of literature. You know, it's all very well him saying to Blanche, not full as luck would have it, I've got a film deal, so obviously I'm going to, you know, write. But fundamentally, what writer can actually do that? It's much more likely that he just simply pairs back some of the things he was going to do anyway, which are coming from a place of having read Kant at the age of 13 and Henry J. I mean, the, the idea of all the writers in the world who would influence <laughs> yeah. such a pared back style Henry James is the one that, and yet you can kind <laughs> you of see, it. see yeah. it you can kind of see it because of the psychological consistency of it so John what does happen to Dashiel <laughs> after he has this huge success Dashiel Dashiel of course whose real name we should point out is Samuel uh, yeah. which which I'm oh, not sure, I'm yeah, not yeah, sure yeah. that's a coincidence <laughs> I'm not sure. Where, where do you get your ideas from, Mr. Hammett? Yes. <laughs> yeah, we should say De Shiel is uh, the reason we're calling him De Shiel is uh, there's a, the, we will play a small clip of Lillian Hellman, his partner, later on. And she's interviewed by Dick Cavett in 1973. And she says it, it was De Shiel. She says it's an old Maryland name. So he was born and brought up in Maryland. His father was a feckless alcoholic. He loved his mother, but his mother suffered from TB. Um, he also ended up suffering from TB. Um, so his, his kind of early, you know, he had to leave school at 14, or despite being bright, because he had to go and earn money. And as we've sort of picked up, he earned that through writing pulp fiction. He became a Pinkerton detective. There's also the theory that maybe a lot of his writing was because he had to write those very terse reports that maybe that also uh, contributed to his famously sort of terse exterior uh, observed prose style. And then Andy has already alluded to the fact that uh, he couldn't work as a detective because he was ill, but then he, the Maltese, he writes The Maltese Falcon and it becomes a massive hit. It's the worst, best thing that could have happened to him. Yeah. <laughs> right? You know, he, he, because suddenly... You know, be careful what you wish for. He's got all, he's acclaimed, he's a bestseller, people are making films of his stuff. He has all the money he could possibly desire to spend on anything other than writing more books, it seems to me, right? You know, he, there are no deadlines anymore, and gradually it peters out, right? The, the, the creativity seems to drain away from him. It's a mixture, as I understand it, of exactly what you've just said, Andy, plus ill health, plus yeah. the fact that he, he was being crucified by uh, the government um, and, and had to fight against, you know, I mean, did he actually go up? Did he go up before House on America? He did, and he went to prison as well. He went um, to prison, yeah, you know, and, later and, in his life. But. And like Spade, like Sam Spade, I mean, it's a very easy comparison to make, but he refused, he refused to bow down. He just refused to... Uh, to crumble in the face of this this terrible persecution. So, I mean, I think writing kind of went on the back burner for a while. Yeah. He also, it's worth saying, I, I get the impression from what I've read that the writing was drying up when he meets Lillian Hellman. Yeah, yeah. 
and he devotes the energy that might have gone to into his own creativity he devotes to her in a very forward thinking way it's him who it's Hammett who provides Lillian Hellman with the idea that for her play The Children's Hour which becomes this one of the most important American plays of the 20th century and it's Hammett who edits that there are notes of his edits you know he's deeply involved with the creation of of that play. That's not to take credit away from Lillian Hellman, but but nevertheless, those are that is a collaborative project. And in turn, his interest in the Communist Party, he's sort of kind of he's kind of the writing is dried dried up. So well, he, he throws himself into being a, a figurehead for that or for the various organizations, and then in turn becomes persecuted, Mark, yeah. as you say. Mm-hmm. He he does. I mean, it's interesting. He when he he meets obviously that Hellman and he fall in love, have a famously tempestuous relationship. He is already drinking, but he drinks even more when they're together. But I mean, the, the, his last hurrah really, and it was a fairly kind of successful hurrah. It lasted him at least fifteen years in terms of of money. He creates uh, Nick and Nora Charles. Nick is a uh, is an alcoholic, basically an alcoholic detective. The Thin Man, played brilliantly by I believe Holden in the movies, and Myrna Loy plays Nora, and that gets turned in really in, into what we would now call a franchise. I think there's six or seven Thin Man <laughs> movies, and it, it goes on into into the it, right into the 1950s. And he he is making money, good money, really good money, and he's hanging out through Lillian Hellman. With the Fitzgeralds and you know the the kind of the, the the set that he's always felt he ought to be part of, but as Andy says, it somehow in the middle of all that his ability to write fiction disappears. He he uh, the, and the Thin Man is not really. Let's be honest, it's many things. It's romantic comedy, but it's not hard. It's not hardball. It's not Sam Spade. No, we talked about Lillian Hellman. Should we hear from Lillian Hellman now? We've got a clip from her on a. Uh, you said it was the Dick Cabot show, did you? In the seventies. Yeah, and I should, I should set this up is that basically André Gide and Gertrude Stein and all the all the kind of the cool kids in Paris, for, for, for reasons that we can only speculate, pick out Hammett as being one of the great American novelists. And I think it was in 1935, they get to meet Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas in New York. I remember she gave me a very unpleasant look. I was sitting... Uh, with her and Hammett on a couch. She, was, she said to Hammett, you write about women better than any other American writer. And Dash very pleasantly said, maybe because of Lillian. And she said, who? <laughs> well, that relationship was, uh, that relationship was as, we, as we know, a stormy and tempestuous one. I think what you, I think what you just said is very interesting, John, about uh, once the writing dried up, it's it's hard not to speculate. Self-loathing would be putting it too strongly, but it's hard not to think that, like like many writers who suddenly find themselves successful with what they do not consider their best work. Yeah. The Maltese Falcon was not his favourite novel. It, it really wasn't. And suddenly that's being filmed everywhere. It's a huge bestseller. And then the Thin Man stuff happens. And as you say, like a, you know, suddenly he's at the centre of a franchise. And he, and he kind of loses the spark. He kind of, you know, that's, that's not what I wanted to be successful for. Not unlike Salinger yeah. in so far as right. Salinger becomes phenomenally successful for yeah. a book that he considers a warm-up to more interesting things. Yeah. 
and catcher yeah, in the yeah. ride for, for its author, but it just becomes a colossal pain in the there's, ass. Yeah, an albatross, a there's, massive there's a albatross. Yeah, lovely yeah. passage in a, in a piece in, from 2018 in the Paris Review by Annie de Beale. And uh, this sort of captures that the, the, although he didn't write anything, uh, she makes the case that his, his life post, you know, post, you know, the, the glory years were, weren't empty. Hammett didn't publish anything in the 26 years between The Thin Man and his death, but he wasn't idle. He drank prodigiously. He edited his lover Lillian Hellman's plays. He joined the Communist Party. He taught a mystery writing class. He joined the army again. He stopped drinking. He was called to testify before the House of Un-American Activities Committee. He was found guilty of contempt of court and sent to prison. He maintained relationships with Josephine and his daughters and with Lillian, who became more of a friend than a lover. He had other lovers. He adored his grandchildren. He fished. He made his own fishing lures. He took up sketching and photography. He read. There is tragedy in his not writing, only in that he tried. He struggled for decades to finish a novel, Tulip, and never did. It was published, wasn't it, eventually, Tulip? Yeah. The unfinished novel. Yeah, was it? Yeah, it was. Um, the, other th- the other thing to say, so for anybody listening to this who, who, who's never read any Hammett, much as we've been talking about the Maltese Falcon. Red Harvest. Uh, the, the other books. I mean, Red Harvest is just astonishing. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the biggest crime writing award that's, that's awarded annually in Scandinavia, where they do take they do. their literary, literary so is called yeah. The Glass Key, uh, which book. is another uh, fabulous, fabulous Hammett novel. Well, look. I know everyone is on tenterhooks for our quiz. Um, <laughs> I, I certainly am. <laughs> okay, so um, so what we're going to do is experts have identified, as I said, uh, twenty songs <laughs> by Elvis Costello. Twenty two zero. Yeah, twenty songs by Elvis Costello. And the reason why this is so interesting is, of course, our guest Mark Billingham is. Uh, I happen to know a huge fan of Elvis Costello. Uh, I happen to know John Mitchinson is a huge fan of Elvis Costello. I myself am a huge fan of Elvis Costello. Nicky Birch <laughs> is not a huge fan of Elvis Costello. So that's going to be very interesting. And also, I'd like to say occasionally Backlisted is, crit- hang on, occasionally Backlisted is criticised uh, for being a bit blokey. And uh, I always reject that criticism with passionately. Uh, it really annoys me and gets under my skin. Well, I, I, that's not the case for the next five minutes. So, 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 so the great things about podcasts is, is if this is too much, just fast forward it. Just fast forward it five minutes. We're going to have this little bit of fun now. So, um, Nicky, are now, you I've ready? Got to say, I've got to say, Andy, this is so niche. I mean, I, I, I actually did Elvis Costello as my specialist subject on Celebrity Mastermind. And... And, I know. and the connection with Dashiell Hammett never came up. I love it. Um, <laughs> no, I know, right? No. It is, there's a great connection with Joe Strummer, though. Did you know about the, the Joe Strummer connection? When Strummer was was ill, very seriously ill in hospital with, with TB, I think, at one point, the book he chose to read was The Maltese Falcon, I've always thought. I did Joe not know that. Call. Okay, that's very good. Just before you start, and I, uh, and I reveal my kind of, you know, amazing knowledge of uh, Elvis Costello songs or not, I also have to say that I've only watched the film as well. So this is, puts me in a really, and that was a while ago. Okay. So Nikki. anything I get, I'm going to be impressed with myself. Nikki, Every, yeah, everything yeah, to remember, play Remember, guess, Nikki. Right. Everything to I'm play for. for right, so what we're going to, the way we're going to run this quiz, such as we were, such as it's going to fall to pieces fast, don't worry, is I'm going to ask Nikki, then John, then our guest Mark, to name one of the 20 songs of Elvis Costello, inspired by Dashiell Hammett's novel, The Maltese Falcon. Admittedly, as Mark said earlier, are these loosely inspired by (laughs) 
Very loose, Mark. Okay. Very, very loosely indeed. Okay. So, Nikki, see you. A song by Elvis Costello, which is inspired by the Maltese Falcon, please. Okay. I know three Elvis Costello songs. So okay, I'm going to go. go with Watching the Detectives. You are right. I think you're, I think you're on, yeah. on, on okay. safe ground there. Great. John. Uh, uh, trust. <laughs> it's not a song. No. It's an album. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Expelled. He's out. You, Nicky did better than you, Mitch. Well done. Right. It's between Nicky and Mark Billingham. Right, Mark, go. Okay. Well, I'm going to go very loosely with Battered Old Bird. Yes! Battered Old Bird, the Maltese Falcon Magnificent. Uh, Nikki, back to you. The other song I know is Alison, but I don't know if there's another, if there's an Alison in Maltese Falcon. What's your third Elvis Costello song? Oliver's you know? Army. Yes. <laughs> it's not one of those it's either. Not, I mean, I'd love to find some way in which it, uh, yeah. by default, yeah. uh, Mark yeah. is going to win yeah. this, but okay. I know he can come up with it. Am I out completely now? It may not be on your list. It may yeah, you're out, You're Mitch, out, Mitch, you're done. You trust, you're out, you're, you're done. done. So I can't even um, say man out of time. I mean... <laughs> No, no, that wasn't on this because there are, list anyway. Because there are at least two, at least two in the Maltese Falcon. I'm going to go with The Imposter. Yes, you are correct that we have that on our list. Okay, Mark Billingham wins our quiz, which is only right, as it should be. John, <laughs> Nikki, Mark, are there any others you would like to just throw into the ring? I, well, okay, I want to know what's on your list. Um, yeah, come tell on. Me the got... album. Tell me the album, and let's see if we can guess the tracks. Punch the Clock, there's a track from Punch the Clock. Uh, King of Thieves. Correct. Uh, third track, side one, I think, Armed Forces. Third Green track, shirt. side one, Armed Forces. Just throwing that in there. No, that's, that is the third track, side one. I think I've got this wrong. It's Goon Squad. Oh, Goon Squad. Oh, yeah. Goon Squad. Goons, right. Yeah. yeah. I'll just give you the rest. I Stand oh, yeah. Accused. Yeah. Possession. Yeah. The Beat. Yeah. Shot with his own gun. Boy, Boy with, with a Problem. problem. <laughs> Worthless <laughs> thing. Boy with a Problem. Boy with a problem. Uh, yeah, written by Chris Tippett, if I'm right. Elisha Cook Jr. Yeah. Elisha Cook Jr. Yeah, is a boy with a problem, okay. right? Okay. Okay, yeah. Worthless thing. Uh, good. Yeah. Uh, crimes of Paris, because it's plaster of Paris, mm. so that's the bird, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> it's made of lead, Andy. Heathen Town. The bird's made of lead. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, experts are full. <laughs> We've had enough of experts. Um, <laughs> this offer is unrepeatable. Okay. Kind of Murder, all to- My All-Time Doll. American Gangster Time, Complicated Shadows, <laughs> Alibi, and of course, Spooky Girlfriend. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so okay. So if you're just if you've just fast forwarded this segment, <laughs> we're back. We're back. The show is now open to everyone again. We're, welcome, we're back. Welcome back. So um, I'd love to think he's a fan. I would love to think that Elvis oh, is come a fan. On, do you, I, mean, I reckon. Come on, Mark. Surely. Elvis. Elvis is all kidding aside. She's filing her nails while they're jagging the lake. Elvis's songs are full of references to, to crime yeah, tropes yeah. Yeah. and film noir. Fiction novelists. Yeah. I, I always wanted to ask you, do you think you were ever inspired yourself by, because I know how much you love Elvis, yeah. do you think that little bit of that snuck into your the way you see the world and think well, about it. Well, the thing, in all seriousness, has always attracted me to Costello uh, are the lyrics. I mean, you know, he's, a, he's a, an amazing songwriter, yeah. but the sort of, the, the stories that are not obvious, it's just Kind of Murder, which is a, a, a song you've just mentioned, is, one, is, is, is absolutely that. You just, you listen to the lyrics of that song and you go, what the hell is going on? And you think you've got a handle on it and you start, you know, yeah. oddly, there is a, uh, a collection of short stories being published next year called Brutal and Strange, uh, short stories based on the songs of Elvis Costello. And it's coming out wow. next year. And I've, I've, I've written a song based on, uh, I've written a story based on the song Our Little Angel. Um, again, 
no, nothing to do with the song, just what that song made me think. Right. And, you know, <laughs> okay. he, he does that and better people, than anybody. And to think people would level criticism that this bit was irrelevant. It, uh, irrelevant or broken. <laughs> so, it's ridiculous. It was so tied in, <laughs> so tied in to the heart of the show. I can't believe it. Well, anyway, Johnny. And I'm afraid it's time now for us to climb into the battered, backlisted jalopy and leave Deshiel Hammett and Sam Spade on the street corner. Huge thanks to Mark for guiding us through the mean streets of this wonderful novel and to Nikki Birch for helping us sound like the wise-cracking wiseacres we aspire to be. If you would like show notes with clips, links and suggestions for further reading for this show and the 187 that we've always recorded <laughs> and the 187 that we've already recorded, please visit our website at thatlisted.fm. If you want to buy the books discussed, visit our shop at bookshop.org and choose Backlisted as your bookshop. And we're still keen to hear from you on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. If you want to hear Backlisted without ads, subscribe to our Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash Backlisted. Your subscription brings other benefits. If you subscribe at the lock listener level for less than the price of a plate of pickled pig's feet at John's Grill, you'll get two extra exclusive podcasts every month. We call it Locklisted because it began in the Wenlock Tavern just before lockdown, and it features the three of us talking and recommending the books, films, and music we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight. People who subscribe at this level also get their names read out, accompanied by lashings of thanks and gratitude like this. Rob Annadale, thank you. Tessa Coolit, thanks, Tessa. Gillian Roach, thank you, thank Gillian. You. Jennifer Langley, thank, thank you, you, Jennifer. And Sue Mendes, thank you. Alice Lancaster. Monica Rookholt. Thank you. Nicola Peck. Thank you. Gretchen Rubin. Thank you. <laughs> Keep it sincere, Johnny. Come on. And, <laughs> and, oh, we are sincere. We love you. Thank you. And Duncan. Thank you, everybody. Thank you very much. You need a little cheesy theme behind that. So it's like our song, Simon Bates, our tune. Yeah. I know. Do you know what? Do you know what, Nikki? Do you know what, Nikki Mark's right? Could we have some easy listening yeah. Elvis Costello the next time we do this? Yes, just, that would be great. <laughs> just just the, so we can snap in. along in the background. Yeah, nice. Uh, and we're delighted to add a new name to the highest firmament of all. The Guild of Master Storytellers welcomes Stephen oh, Van Amel. Well, Stephen, thank you. Thank you, much. Stephen. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Well, Mark, before we go, this has been a lot of fun. It's been a hoot. I would I would go so far as to say, <laughs> what is the uh, do you have? Is there anything that you feel we haven't said? I mean, there's there's lots, isn't there? About Hammett or Sam Spade or the Maltese Falcon. Sam Spade, we've mentioned it more than once, but I think it's absolutely astonishing that this iconic detective was in one book and one book only. I mean, that that to me is just a mark of of how important yeah. and great this book is. And, and I'm absolutely thrilled by the fact that you, Andy, who hadn't read it, loved it. And that John, who read it again, loved it even more. You know, it, it would have been mm. fairly awful if if you'd both gone. Well, nah, mm. it's, it's not all that, is it? That would that would be quite a strange episode of backlisted. Although maybe you've had those. I don't know. Where people have chosen books that you all hated. Um, Almost never. One famous example. Well, you can tell me when we finish recording. I've just got one little thing. Can I just read one little thing, which I thought was lovely. Um, Diana Johnson, the novelist, said this lovely thing. The heroism of his life lay not in his Horatio Alger success, but in the long years after success, when money and gifts were gone. It is the long, blank years that prove the spirit. Oh, that's beautiful, yeah. Kind of cool thing. Okay, well, listen, thanks, everybody, and thank you, Mark, for 
for coming on. This has been great. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. It's been a pleasure. Amazing. Uh, see you next time, everybody. See you next time. Bye. See you in a fortnight. Thank you.